I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 of chapter 7 to the first section. It says, But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or pray for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they did to the cities of Judah and in the cities of Jerusalem and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and fathers kindle the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Jeremiah began this chapter, obviously, and this sermon in verse 1. The Lord told Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the Lord's house. He basically said, go into the temple and stand by the gate, and I'm going to give you a message, and I want you to proclaim that message to the people, to the people who are coming into the temple to worship the Lord. Once again, the Lord brings a message of rebuke and exhortation. And warning, remember what's happening. It's the 6th century B.C. The armies of Babylon are making their way from the north and east. Assyria has basically crumbled. The northern kingdom has long since passed away. Judea and Jerusalem are right on the precipice of judgment. Jeremiah has been called by God. To sound the alarm, warn the people to repent of their sin, to honor God, to obey God. And so the passage started off in verses 1 through 5. The people were deceived by sin. And because they were deceived by sin, pretty soon they would be destroyed by sin, according to verses 16 through 34. Remember... The people are reluctant to believe Jeremiah's message. Most people are. Most people are reluctant to believe that when you say, guess what? The way of the transgressor is hard. Guess what? If you continue to drink, if you continue to drug, if you continue to rebel and disobey God, if you continue in a life of self-destruction, it's going to catch up with you. I don't believe you. Nothing really bad has happened so far. Well, what has to happen to you before you'll go, wait a minute, I think things are out of control and out of hand. The religious people felt sure that their religious heritage and the presence of God's temple in Jerusalem would be sufficient motivation for God to spare the people in the city. Remember, they're, they're thinking, we're Jews. We live in Judea. This is Jerusalem. There's the temple. The message of the false prophets included Part good theology and part bad theology. In other words, the false prophet said, well, remember, didn't God promise an everlasting dynasty to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12? Didn't he say so long as there was a throne, your heritage would sit on the throne, but they left out the part of honoring God and obeying God. The false prophets taught the people that God had chosen Zion as the place where he would dwell on the earth. And they would quote Psalm 132, verse 13, and they'd say, see, Jerusalem is the place where God lives. See, the temple is where God manifests his presence. If God were going to be consistent to his promise and his nature, he can't harm Jerusalem. He can't harm his people. The false prophets firmly believed that, an that in an emergency, if things got really bad, 
that God would intervene in the judgment and for the false prophets and their false gospel, the people had a false sense of security. And so it is. People have a false gospel and a false sense of security if they believe a gospel that says Jesus loves you. That part is true. He died for your sins. That part is true. He rose from the dead. That part is true. And he doesn't care how you live. He doesn't care what you think and he doesn't care what you do. That part is false. The whole New Testament is devoted in part to the idea that we used to live a certain kind of a life, but we don't have to live that way anymore because guess what? God is real and Jesus is real and the Holy Spirit is a powerful presence who can transform our heart and our thinking. In this sermon at the gate, Jeremiah basically condemns God's people who deceive themselves over this issue of unrepentant sin. But Jeremiah will also grieve over the people's sin and suffering. And then he will contrast the true and living God with the failed idols that the people had chosen to trust. Jeremiah began the message by pointing out that coming to worship does you no good if true repentance and obedience to the Lord isn't a part of your life. Jeremiah calls for the people to repent and in the context that it was only... This would be the only way that the people would live in the land of promise in verse 3. So the people were told not to place their trust, their security, their confidence in the religious system of Judaism or the physical edifice of the temple. Remember what Jesus said. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Remember what the religious leaders did? They said they accused Jesus of saying that he was going to destroy Herod's temple. But the Bible says, no, he wasn't speaking of a physical edifice or a building. He was speaking of his own body, which he would bring back to life. Jesus was speaking of his death and his resurrection. In this sweeping sermon, Jeremiah reminds the people that worship apart from repentance and obedience has no value in verses 1 through 15. Prayer apart from repentance and obedience has no value and will not be heard by God according to verses 16 through 21. Offerings and sacrifices have no value apart from repentance and obedience in verses 22 through 26. God's discipline and correction has no value value apart from a willingness to repent of sin and obey God in verses 27 all the way to chapter 8 verse 3 what is he saying in part that religion without relationship is at best superficial and so in verse 12 look what it says But go now into my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. Remember, remember what they were thinking. We're Jews. We live in Judah and Jerusalem. There's the temple. This is the place where God dwells. God wouldn't allow anything bad to happen to his people. He wouldn't allow anything bad to happen to the city. He wouldn't allow anything bad to happen to the to his to his namesake and the Lord says no Shiloh was a sacred place this is the place where where God had the tabernacle God allowed it to be destroyed why because of the hypocrisy and inconsistency and the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion of the people who were looking at the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle of God like lucky charms as if If I just have this magical thing in my life, then that will be enough to protect me. Some people have that false idea. They they think of religion like a lucky charm. If I go to church, nothing bad could happen to me. If I have a Bible and I read it every once in a while, nothing bad can happen to me. If I pray once in a while, nothing bad can happen to me. But if I live my life in rebellion and disobedience, well, all of the time that I spent at church and all of those prayers that I prayed and all of that Bible reading that I did will be fine. You know, people have frequently told me that symbols and statues and candles 
serve as a valuable tool in their worship. Hey, look, I'm not worshiping the statue and I'm not worshiping the the candle and I'm not worshiping the image. It just serves as an aid in my worship. But guess what? Aids can easily become substitutes for true faith. And that's the challenge that Jeremiah is giving to any individual who has substituted ritual for relationship symbol for the substance of true living faith and a living God and for the religious leaders and the apostate followers. When Jeremiah is making this statement, it sounds incredible. It sounds unbelievable. And in verse 13, it says, and now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you. Rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear me, and I called you, but you did not answer. The Lord is basically saying that the people would be held accountable for their actions. That they could no longer blame anyone but themselves. In other words, when the Lord says, I I got up early, and I rose up early, and I spoke to you, but you didn't hear They couldn't say, when did you speak to us? When was it that you spoke to us? God warned them time and time and time again through the centuries. Remember, Jeremiah is is writing these words, but already Isaiah has spoken. Already prophets have come. Samuel spoke to them. The prophet Isaiah had spoken to them. The prophet Ezekiel would speak to them over and over and over again. He would warn them about their sin and he would warn them about their hypocrisy. You know what? We sometimes forget that again, remember, God's warnings are in order to help us and not to hinder us or hurt us. In verse 14, it says, therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust. And remember, he's talking about the temple. I will do to the house. That's the temple, which is called by my name. That means the place where he's inscribed his name in which you trust. What are they trusting in? The physical edifice. The brick and the mortar, the stones of the temple. And to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Remember what Jeremiah is prophesying. Being in Jerusalem and being near the temple won't help you. You know what? If I can just stick close to religion. If I can have a Bible handy, if I can make some sort of pretext of prayer, that will save me in the day of judgment. Now, guess what? I'm glad you read your Bible and I'm glad you pray and I'm glad you come to church. But if you think reading, praying and coming to church is a magic amulet to keep you away from harm, you are absolutely incorrect. I went to church and I prayed and I read my Bible. Why are bad things continuing to happen to me? Don't you remember what the Bible says? The way of the transgressor is hard. Don't you remember what the Bible says? Be sure that your sin will find you out. Don't you remember that there's a reason why God saved you in Jesus Christ? It was so that you could live a life that was honoring and pleasing to him. The Lord was willing to allow the temple to be destroyed. The Lord was willing to take away the physical edifice that they trusted in. And it becomes a principle. You know what the principle is? God will take away things that you trust other than him. I'm trusting in my job. More than the Lord? Don't be surprised if the Lord takes it away. I'm trusting in the government. I feel bad for you then. I feel really bad for you. I wish I could say to you, oh, the Lord will take away the government. But guess what? Have there been nations in the world where they've experienced a collapse of their economy? Would our country be the first in the whole world if its currency became worthless? Would our country be the first in the world if we experienced a series 
of disabling and debilitating circumstances. The Lord destroyed the tabernacle in Shiloh because of the Jews' hypocrisy and sin. Here's what he's saying. I will destroy the temple in Jerusalem as well because of hypocrisy and sin. Does it shock you or surprise you that the Lord would take stuff away from us because of hypocrisy and sin? And so in verse 15, it says, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim or in Hebrew, Ephraim. That's my grandfather's name, by the way, Ephraim. Ephraim Rosenmond. My grandfather would say, show me a Gentile and I'll show you someone who's got something against the Jews. Ephraim was the name, the collective name that was used to describe all of the northern tribes. When in verse 15, it says, I will cast you out of my sight. As I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim, he's saying, did I allow the northern kingdom to dissolve and be taken captive? The answer is yes. Well, that's because they were hypocrites and apostates. Did your grandma ever say, why would you call, why would the kettle call you black when the kettle is black? In other words, why would you accuse someone of saying something which, in fact, that's what you are? So going to church on Sunday, going to church on Wednesday does no good. Unless you're living for Jesus on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I'm not talking about being a perfect person. I'm not talking about never making a mistake. I'm talking about a person who gets up in the morning and says, I love you, Lord. What do you have for me today? I'm talking about the person who opens up their Bible, not as a religious obligation, but because you genuinely want to see what God has to say to you. I'm not talking about going to church in order to make me happy, but it does make me happy when you come. But there's something else that makes you happy, and that's the friendship and the fellowship that forms it is the encouragement and direction that you receive. That's what it's talking about. God accepts our worship if we repent and trust him and live in his grace and walk in Christ's love. Worship apart from a vital relationship and fellowship with Jesus is useless and fruitless and faithless and hopeless. So professing Christ and worshiping the Lord and then living a life of rebellion and disobedience becomes the very definition of hypocrisy. You know, it's really different. It's really different. Then when a person says, look, I'm struggling in this area, praise God, a lot of people struggle in this area. I'm struggling in that area. I have problems in this with these kinds of issues. I have problems with those kinds of issues. Praise God that you have problems. Why? Because there's a satisfying solution to every single problem in Christ. But guess what? We really do have to say, Lord, I don't want sin and rebellion to be a part of my life. I want grace and mercy and freedom and submission to you, Lord, to be the most important part of my life. In verse 16, it says, therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. That should just shake you to the core. You mean there comes a point where God will say, don't pray for that. What is it specifically? Let me help you understand something. Jeremiah pays no attention to good homiletical order. Notice what he does. He puts the conclusion right in the middle of the sermon. Stop praying for these people. One Bible commentator said it is a dramatic, terrifying way of saying that the disease is too far advanced for the divine physician to cure it. When I read that, I almost choked. Why? Because what he's talking about isn't a specific issue. He's talking about an inevitable judgment that is going to take place on a people that have resisted and rejected the plan of God and the message of God and the purpose of God. Here's part of the point. The Lord is basically saying to Jeremiah, judgment is going to come. 
guess what? We're past the point where where the armies of Babylon are not going to come in and the horrible consequences of rebellion and disobedience are not going to take place. Here's part of what you need to understand. The people of Judah and Jerusalem were unwilling to repent and obey God. Therefore, God says, stop praying. The people were stubborn. They were hardened in their heart. They appeared beyond repentance. And no matter how many prayers Jeremiah would pray, no matter how many pleas he would make, no matter how many times he would intercede, God would not relent on this particular issue because the people wouldn't respond. As a matter of fact, I want to point something out to you. When the Lord said, Jeremiah... Stop praying. Here's the question. Did he? Did he obey God or did he disobey God? Now, for those of you who have read Jeremiah, you know, we see him praying in chapter 15, verse 11. We see him praying in chapter 18, verse 20. Does that mean he's in sin and rebellion? I don't think so. Because he's praying about other things, specific things. By the way, and are we ever told to stop praying in the New Testament? There is a passage. It's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Some of you are familiar with it. Well, maybe, I, maybe it's 1 John chapter 5. Did I put this down wrong? Now I'm going to have to go and look it up. 1 John chapter 5, sorry, verse 16. Look what it says. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he, small h, will ask. And he, big h, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. What does that mean? If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. Here's the idea in the passage. A person comes to you and says, hey, I couldn't help noticing, but you're drinking, drugging and whoring. And how dishonoring that is to God. I was wondering if you would stop. And the person says, how dare you? How dare you? What gives you? How dare you speak to me? How dare you judge me? Who do you think you are, you self-righteous Christian? He, big H, will give him life for those who commit sin. Here's the idea. The person has no intention of listening to anything that I have to say. So John writes, pray. Pray and ask the Lord. Say, Lord, what I'm saying has no effect on this person. So, Lord, you speak to them. You talk to them about personal purity. You talk to them about what it means to know you and to love you and to serve you. Heavenly Father, I'm not bringing this to their attention to make life miserable for them. I'm bringing this to their attention so that they will turn from their sin and so that they will love you and trust you so that they can live a life of freedom and so that they can live a life of joy and so that they can live a life of gracious tenderness so that life can be good for them. Lord, help them. Help them turn from their sin. Help them receive forgiveness and hope. Help them to know you and to love you and to honor you. And by the way, then God speaks to that person and convicts them of their sin and their rebellion and, and their disobedience. It's one thing for me to say something. And it's another thing for the Holy Spirit to convict your heart. If the Holy Spirit starts tugging at your heart, if the Holy Spirit brings something to your heart's attention and says, you know what, this particular area of your life, I need you to go in a different direction. It's one thing for you to say, that stupid preacher. And it's another thing for you to resist God and His Holy Spirit, isn't it? That's what it says. He will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Then it says, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. What does that mean? It sounds like an admonition that there's certain kinds of prayers that are ineffectual and that won't work and that 
There's going to be consequences. Have you ever heard the expression that what a person sows, that also they will reap? Imagine a person holds up a liquor store. They shoot the person dead. They get put on trial for murder. And you begin to pray, oh, Lord, I just pray that they won't go to jail for murder. By the way, are there certain things that we could do that the inevitable consequences, no matter how hard you pray, will probably come to pass? I think that the answer is yes. Imagine a person says, you know, I know that this person has AIDS. And I know that if I have sexual contact with the person, I might get AIDS. But Lord, I just pray that I can have repeated sexual contact with this person and never get AIDS. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you think that that prayer is going to go over with God? Is it possible that if you do something over and over and over again, there might be consequences? Lord, I hope that I can have sexual contact with my boyfriend, but never get pregnant in Jesus name. Amen. See, you laugh, but you understand something. The reality is God created a mechanism for the men and women come together that when you have sexual contact, often there's a child that is produced from that contact. And for you to pray and say, Lord, I want to have all of the freedom to do whatever I want, and I don't want any of the consequences ever to bother me. That that's kind of a ridiculous prayer. Sin leading to death appears to be some transgression where the consequence is invariably death. What line had the people crossed that even the prayers of Jeremiah were deemed useless? (laughs) It was the people's persistent idolatry. It was the people's persistent rebellion. And they were about to come under judgment. By the way, does that mean that you can't pray for your wayward daughter or son or family member or neighbor or loved one? Does that mean you can't pray for them? No, that's exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. You see, God gives Jeremiah a specific instruction to not pray about a specific judgment that was going to come to pass because of persistent idolatry and rebellion. You know what? We don't necessarily have that same circumstance. Do you know everything about everything? I don't. So unless the Lord tells me differently, when someone comes to me and says, will you pray for me? Guess what I do? I pray for you. Will you pray that God will touch my body for healing? Yes, I will. Will you pray that my sinning daughter or son or grandchild will come home? Yes, I will. Will you pray for my cousin, my friend, my husband, my wife, who has a persistent problem with alcohol and drugs? Yes, I will. In verse 17, it says... Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. (laughs) Can't you see what they're doing? Verse 18. The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. The women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. You know what the Lord is saying? Do you see the persistent commitment to rebel And disobey. Here's the idea. The family that prays together stays together. Well, what if it's, it's idolatry? That's what's happened. Idolatry has become a family affair. The whole population were involved in worshiping false gods. Children, fathers, mothers, they all united in worshiping the queen of heaven and other false gods provoking God's anger. And what were these little cakes that Jeremiah is talking about? You were actually not told. It might have been some ritual meal, a kind of unholy communion. The word cake, by the way, is a borrowed word from a different language. That seems that appears in the Bible only here and in and in chapter 44, verse 19. It may be that the people in worshiping the queen of heaven and by the way, the queen of heaven is Ishtar. And she's spoken of in chapter 44, 19 as well. As a matter of fact, 
if you make a little note, I'll just read it to you. It's Jeremiah 44:19. It says, The women also said, And we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her. Did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without her husband's permission? In the Hebrew text, it says, Cakes bearing her image. It might have been little cakes in the form of Ishtar or Ashtar. She was both the Assyrian and the Canaanite goddess of love and fertility. And so in their culture and at that particular time, the goddess of love and the goddess of fertility was a goddess who was worshipped in order to make the crops come, in order to ensure uh, a family so that if you were a woman and you were unable to bear children, um, you would pray to the queen of heaven, you would make little cakes in the image of the queen of heaven, and you would eat those cakes in the hope that it would magically make you fertile. And so here, here is the idea. The people were open to every false religion, uh, apparently... If you discriminated against anyone's belief system, it was seen as small-minded and mean-spirited. And so, at that time, and in that particular culture, the Babylonians and the Canaanites would talk about these gods and goddesses, and it was their deeply held conviction that these invisible spirits had the ability to bring the rain or refrain the rain from coming, to bring pregnancy or not bring pregnancy. And so they had this magical way of thinking, and they refused to believe what God said about himself and his relationship with his people. And so here's the idea, that the people culturally remembered that Abraham was their father and that Moses gave them the law and that they had a sacrificial system, but they went ahead and incorporated all of the religious belief systems that surrounded their area. Just like today. You know, it's okay if you believe in God and it's okay if you believe in the Bible and it's okay if you believe in Jesus and all of that stuff. But be open and sensitive to other people's beliefs. You know, there are people who don't believe that there's a God like you believe. There are people who believe that it all just sort of happened, that we just sort of got here, that nothing became something. There's, there's people who believe in material naturalism that the whole universe is just made up of molecules and atoms and, and things interact with one another and that it's a series of cosmic mistakes that you even exist. And you've got to be sensitive to that. You have to be sensitive to the fact that there are people who believe in all kinds of different things. Well, you know what? We are sensitive to the fact that there are people who believe all kinds of different things. But the reality is, what if the Bible is true? What if the Bible is true that human beings are sinners and they need a savior? What if the Bible is true when it speaks of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? What if the Bible is true that sin is a horrible thing and that it separates us from God? What if the Bible is true that you were made to know him and love him? What if the Bible is true that persistent commitment to resist him and rebel against him results in a life of eternal separation from him. And so the people basically continued the rituals. By the way, Josiah would ban the rituals and the ceremonies, but it didn't make the idolatry go away in their hearts. After the death of Josiah, there seems to be this return to the pagan practices. And in verse 19, it says, Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Do you know what he's saying? Are they doing this to try and make me mad? That might seem odd to you, huh? God, I'm going to sin against you to try and make you mad. But remember what the Bible says. 
Is God patient? What do you think the answer to that is? Yeah. Is he kind? Yes. Is he generous? Yes. The Bible says that he is patient with you. That often you don't get what you deserve. The Bible says that he hasn't rewarded you according to your sin. He hasn't punished you according to your iniquity. And sometimes that leaves you with a false sense of security. I drank and God didn't send me to hell. I took LSD and I didn't go to hell. I did this, I did that, I did this, and I did that. And there wasn't an immediate and abrupt and a dramatic consequence. God must not care. No, no, he cares. He's patient and kind. Look what it says. Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? God is being patient. God is being merciful. God is being kind. In, in verse 20, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. You know what he's saying? The judgment isn't now. But when the judgment comes, it will be full. It will be final. It will be overwhelming. It will be pervasive. It will not just simply affect the people in Judea and Jerusalem. It will affect the animals. It will affect the trees. It will affect the fruit on the ground. In verse 21, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. You know what the Lord is saying? Go ahead and forget about sacrificing. Instead of sacrificing, go ahead and just eat that sheep, eat that goat, eat those pigeons, eat that stuff. Uh, here's what he's saying. A sacrificial system that neglects heartfelt personal and moral transformation does no good. It has no value. He's basically saying what constitutes true love and loyalty to God is repentance and obedience. And if you go into the temple, because that's where they are, he's at the gate of the temple. They're walking through the temple. They're bringing sheep. They're bringing rams. They're bringing the cows. They're bringing the offering. And Jeremiah is saying, keep it. Why? Because the sacrifice has no value. Why? Because they have no intention of knowing and loving and serving God. They have no intention of repenting of their sin. They have no intention of honoring him with their lives. You know what it would be like? You walk into the sanctuary and you put money in the agape box. Money that you were going to spend at the bar or at the strip club. Or you go, look, I've got this money for the church and I have this money for the strip club. Really? Well, Gina, what are you going to say? Keep your money. Don't put your offering in the box. What are you saying? Gina, you're a pastor. Remember, you're supposed to beg people for money. We'll have to shut the doors and turn off the lights if you don't give. Here's what Jeremiah says. If you put money in that box and you think that that's going to make God happy or give you permission to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, keep your money, keep your offerings. Here's what the Lord is saying. If you're going to continue to live in sin, keep your offering. Remember in that culture, burning up the whole offering symbolized total consecration. They would bring the burnt offering. As a matter of fact, a careful study of the burnt offerings in the book of, of uh, oh, Gino, you should know this, Leviticus. 
In the book of Leviticus, it talks about the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and the purpose of the offerings, total surrender, um, sacrifice of thanksgiving and devotion, right relationship with God, sin offering for unintentional sin, trespass offering for unintentional sin against the Lord. They become types and pictures of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his sacrifice. Jeremiah is basically saying, your offering is unacceptable. It doesn't matter. You might as well take the sheep home and go have a barbecue. Because the offering represented a commitment of their lives. Remember, they're going and they're going, just like we sing, I give my life an offering. I surrender most. No, that's not the words. I know the words are all, but I really don't surrender all. I'm surrendering my mind, my heart. I'm keep. But here's what the point that that, that the passage is making. The point of the passage is how can you say that you're giving your whole life to God, but then you're keeping it for yourself? Don't you think God knows that? Don't you think he understands that? So do yourself a favor. Keep your offering. Because it has no value. You know what? If you put money in the box. It has some value to me. But it has no value for you. It has no value for you. If you have absolutely no plan, no intention, no desire to love him and honor him and serve him. By the way, Jeremiah is not saying that sacrifice has no value. He's not saying that the sacrificial system has no value. He's saying that a sacrificial system that neglects personal moral purity and obedience to God has no value. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes and he says, And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. For Jesus, obedience meant submission to his father in the form of a personal sacrifice. But he's not sacrificing himself simply to make his father happy. He's sacrificing himself so that you can be saved. That's the point. That was the picture of the sacrifice. The religious people piled sacrifice on top of sacrifice. But Jeremiah said, you're mere men, you're apostate men. You're offering a sacrifice with an unclean hand and an impure heart, absent faith, with no sacred value, with no atoning force, with no sanctifying power. And so a prayer or a gift has no value because it can't change you from the inside apart from Jesus. And that's why the prayer to Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus becomes the satisfying solution. It's not ritual or religion that changes your heart. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the Lord. And in verse 22, it says, for I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. In other words, here's what it's saying. The giving of the law 
didn't start off with a sacrificial system. In other words, the day that you that they celebrated the Passover, the day that they sacrificed the lamb and they put the blood over the lentils and the death angel was appeased and the children of Israel were released from their bondage. And you remember the Red Sea opened and Moses took them out of the land was the very first thing on God's agenda was, OK, Now I want you to sacrifice all kinds of animals to me. No, that wasn't the first thing on the agenda. The first thing on the agenda was personal, moral purity and obedience to God's instructions. The first thing on the agenda was to love him and to worship him and him alone. That was what was first on the agenda. Here's what the Lord required, and he did require it. Imagine this. This is this is what he's saying. Guess what? I'm going to release you from slavery and bondage. Okay. And this is what I want from you. I want you to love me. And worship me. And serve me. Why should we do that? Well, I am the creator who created you. You exist because I actually brought you into existence. The mind that you have and the mouth that you have and the resources that you have and everything that you are and everything that you have, I gave it to you because I want you to have friendship and fellowship with me. What else do you want? That's pretty much it. No, no, really. What else do you want? No, that's pretty much it. Because if you know me and if you love me, And if you get to know me and you get to know my mind and my heart and my character, you're going to begin to love the things that I love. There is a sense in which obedience came first and sacrifice came second. The sacrifices were never meant to be an end in themselves, but the people were to embrace obedience and discipline. So Jeremiah isn't denying the origin of the sacrificial system with Moses, nor is he denying the necessity of a sacrifice or an atonement because the Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But is it the blood of bulls and goats? Of calves and birds? That are going to be the satisfying solution to the to the problem of sin? No, it's going to be the person of the Messiah. Jeremiah is simply echoing what Samuel said centuries earlier to obey is better than sacrifice for Samuel 15:22. Isaiah said, what unto me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Cease to do evil. Learn to do what's good. Hosea said, I desire goodness and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Micah said, thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil. He said, that's not what I'm looking for, but to do justly and to love kindness and to walk in humility. Lord, if you help, if, if you just let me win the lotto, I'll give you a million dollars. How big is the jackpot? 268 million. But I'll give you a million. How much will you keep? 286 million? Aren't people funny? Lord, if you give me this, I'll give it back to you. Let me ask you a question. And I want you to really think about it. What do you have that God could possibly want? Really? Just think about it for a minute. I have a really nice dinette set. Seriously, what do you have that God really wants? Oddly enough, there's nothing that you have other than your affection, your heart. That's what he really wants. He wants your affection. That's what he desires. In verse 23, it says, but this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Look at look again. But this is what I commanded them. Obey my voice and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. 
and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. Look, he doesn't say walk in all the ways that I commanded you so I don't have to hit you over the head with a great big cosmic stick. He says, I'm asking you to do these things because I love you more than you can imagine. And your life and your well-being is what's important to me. Over and over again, God persisted in that message. By the way, this same message in verse 23, verse 13, chapter 25, verse 3, chapter 29, verse 19, chapter 35, verse 14, chapter 44, verse 4. I know there's the thunder again, just like last week. I didn't orchestrate this. I didn't call upstairs and go, Lord, when I come to this verse, a huge peal of thunder would, I think, I think it would be just the right touch. The father wants to lead the people away from the path of destruction. The tragedy of Israel was her stubborn refusal to follow God's guidance. The poverty of ritual religion is that this doesn't strengthen spiritual communion. Bernard of Clairvaux said, but what to those who find ah, this nor tongue nor pen can show the love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. Do you want to know about the love of Jesus? Love him. Enter into a friendship and a relationship with them. In verse 24, look what it says. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed. Look at what it says. The counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Make no mistake about it. They were listening to somebody. Have you ever had someone say to you, it's my life and I'm going to do what I want. It's my decision, and I'm going to do what I want. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. Some of you remember. It's my life. I'm going to do what I want. God calls that the dictates of their evil hearts. I'm not going to love them, and I'm not going to serve them. I'm going to do what I want. That's the idea. The sacrifices were to flow from hearts that believed and obeyed God. And the offerings weren't accepted because the people didn't hear God and they didn't obey God. And they didn't understand that this obedience is linked to a real and personal relationship. Think about it. It is faith and obedience that provides the basis of friendship and relationship. And in verse 25, it says, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me nor incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. In other words, right when I thought the resistance, the rebellion, the disobedience was was going to be marked by a generation, another generation came along and they were worse than that generation. Can you imagine being asked to speak a message like this? Listen to verse 27. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. This is God speaking to Jeremiah, saying, I want you to say all of these things. And they're going to listen, right? No. They're going to turn from their sin, right? No. They're going to fall to their knees and they're going to cry out to God in sackcloth and ashes. And there's going to be a revival. No. Then why are you making me do this? Because there's going to come a day of judgment. And their life is going to be played right before them. Why didn't you warn me? I did warn you. Why didn't you warn me more than once? I did warn you more than once. But Lord, according to my count, you only warned me 1,757 times. I'm pretty certain 
that if it was 1,758 times, I would have just melted at that 58th time and, and everything would have turned out right. Nobody warned me. Nobody told me. He says in verse 28, so you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God or receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. We have a message for both the nation and the people. Here's what he says. You shall say to them, this is a nation, that's Judea and Jerusalem, that does not obey the voice of their Lord, the Lord, their God, nor receive correction. Now, here's the idea. Does correction and discipline matter if the person refuses to change? This is what God is saying. No, it doesn't matter. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. That's an interesting statement. Truth doesn't cease to be true because people don't believe. So what was the truth? Now listen carefully because this is the key to the whole message. What was the truth that perished and was cut off from their mouth? It's so simple, it will blow your mind. The truth that perished and was cut from their mouth is the simple truth that faith precedes works and that it is godly faith that produces works. It's the truth that the just will live by faith. It's Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, it is written the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. What is the truth? The truth is that in order to have a right relationship with God, you have to believe that he exists. You have to believe that he's there. You have to believe that he loves you. You have to believe that he cares about you. You have to believe that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification. You have to believe by faith that God is interested in saving you and not condemning you, of loving you and not hating you. Freeing you and not enslaving you. And you have to believe that there's nothing that you can say and that there's nothing that you can do and that there's no goodness that you can bring to the table that will somehow move the heart of God to accept you. When in fact, this is the basis in which God accepts you. On the basis of what Jesus has done. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he rises from the dead. That's Truth has perished and has been cut off from out of their mouth. In verse 29, it says, cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Do you understand the text? Here's what he's saying. I need you to mourn. I need you to mourn. The first step in mourning, by the way, when, 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 when there was a terrible devastation, is you would cut off your hair. That's the idea. Based on the fact that judgment is coming, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take it seriously. And so that's the idea. He insists that the people mourn. And what's the generation of his wrath? It's the people who resist and re- reject the message of God. The people who resist and reject the message of God, he's saying, I need you to go into mourning over this. I think that what that means for us is that we need to develop a sensitivity to the fact that people are in big trouble. In verse 30, it says, for the children of Judah have done evil in my sight. No kidding. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name to pollute it. In other words, The act of placing idols in the temple was the supreme act of sacrilege and God had had enough. 
And in verse 31, it says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Enom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even ever come into my heart. This is the disgusting practice of child sacrifice. When he says, and they built high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Enom. He's talking about Kidron. This is a valley that's just in the south of Jerusalem, where the sons and daughters are burnt in the fire. This was the disgusting practice in Jerusalem that's talked about in the time of Manasseh. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, where it talked about they would offer their children to Molech. Here's what they would do. There would be a bronze statue. The, the, the statue of Molech would have bronze arms and the bronze would be extended out like this. And the people, in order to appease the God, would take their children and they would heat the bronze statue and they would roast their children alive on the statue. And you know why they did this? Because they thought... That this would be the only way to make Molech happy. What kind of a religion invites people to kill their children in order to make their God happy? This was something strictly prohibited under the Mosaic Law. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. Here's the point of the passage. I could talk forever about abortion. I could talk about the Holocaust of a country that kills its future. Do you know what the point of this passage is? When a culture embraces child sacrifice... There is inescapable judgment. God said, I'd never ask you to do this. This is something so perverse and so wicked that it never even came into my heart. People may think that Jeremiah is simply condemning religious sins, but Jeremiah is pointing to the fact that when people abandon true worship, when they abandon true sacrifice, when they embrace false worship and false gods, the death of their children inevitably is the only thing that will satisfy these false gods. And I need to be able to tell you this because I know that you know that it's true. Normal people don't kill their children. That seems pretty reasonable, right? There's something awful and there's something perverse and there's something fundamentally wrong. When people wake up one morning and they decide to kill their children. And for this idolatry, the Israelites themselves are going to be slaughtered. By an invading army. And in verse 32 it says. Therefore behold the days are coming says the Lord. When it will no longer be called Tophet. Or the valley of the son of Enom. But the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet. Until there is no room. This gigantic valley will be filled with bodies. Verse 33. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of heaven. And for the beasts of the earth. And no one will frighten them away. Do you understand what you're reading? The slaughter is so profound and the, the people who survive are so few that there won't even be anyone to scare the birds away when they come and they start to pick the flesh off of their rotting carcasses. There's no sympathy. There's no sensitive onlooker. And one of the worst things that could happen in a Jewish culture and society was to leave a dead body unburied. In verse 34, it says, Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Here's the idea. Discipline does no good if no one is going to heed the warning and there's no joy. That's what he's saying. You can go to a particular place and you can hear 
the sounds of a couple as they engage are they're engaged in and in their marriage. It's the sound of joy. It's the sound of celebration. It's the sound of hope. It's the sound of an idea of a future. But there is no future. For a group of people who resist the plan of God and the will of God and the call of God. When we embark on a course of disobedience, God's discipline does no good unless it arouses us to change our behavior. So think about that for just a moment. What good is a warning if no one is going to heed the warning? What good is there a cry for a change if no one is willing to change? If we sow wickedness, we can't reap righteousness. That's why Jesus says in John 15 to every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses five and six, it says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves. He disciplines. He's quoting Proverbs 311. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Proverbs eleven twelve. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Remember when your dad or your grandpa would say, well, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. But not really. It's going to hurt you way more. God really means it. He disciplines you in order to make a change in heart and behavior. In Psalm 94, 12, it says, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. The word instruct means discipline. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and teach out of your law. For Jeremiah... He's going to continue to give the message. For us, will we actually read these words and say to ourselves, Lord, am I willing to hear what you're saying? Am I willing to understand that worship and sacrifice and discipline are all given to make me a man of God or a woman of God so I would press in close and love you. Heavenly Father, am I willing to believe that the just shall live by faith? Lord, am I willing to understand that religion will never serve as a satisfying substitute for relationship with you and friendship with you? Lord, will you give me a heart and will you give me a mind and will you give me an affection that longs to know you and love you and serve you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.